This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Abandoned properties create curiosity in some people, but are foreboding to others. Urban explorers flock to these disused homes, often documenting their finds by photographing the dark and musty interiors. Those who venture inside don't know if they'll be sidestepping rotten floorboards or dodging spiderwebs, or awestruck by magnificent architecture and inspired by weathered history. Regardless of the state of deterioration, the one thing that leaves us wondering about these places is how and why they are no longer inhabited. We scratch our heads, imagining what could have caused people to up and leave the place they once called home. But what happens when this occurs on a much larger scale? What triggers a mass exodus of a city or town, sometimes almost overnight? There are many places around the world, both modern and ancient, where this has happened. Like a curious time capsule, these places are frozen in time. The ghosts of the past and eerie stillness are left for nature to reclaim. Sometimes there are some pretty clear reasons why a town is deserted. Perhaps a natural disaster, like a drought or a flood. There may have been a man-made event, like a nuclear fallout. Maybe the economy dried up the town may have been caught in a war zone. But sometimes it's not always obvious why a place was deserted, because sometimes the cause is hidden underground. As was the case for the residents of Centralia, Pennsylvania. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. For over 100 years, the town of 1,200 people was home to, and known for, coal mining. Coal was first discovered in the area in 1842, and the first mine opened in 1856, with many more popping up, or rather, digging down, in the coming years. The infrastructure to support the mining industry followed, including at its peak in 1890, seven churches, five hotels, 27 saloons, two theaters, a bank, a post office, and 14 general stores. There's nothing unusual about a mining town being abandoned. Throughout history, mining towns have flourished and then been abandoned as bigger and more profitable mineral deposits are discovered elsewhere. But when Centralia was abandoned, there was still plenty of coal under the ground. Too much coal, in fact. In May 1962, a vein of coal in one of the mines caught fire deep beneath the ground. The exact details of the start of the fire are subject to speculation, but most of the stories start with a garbage fire. The town had recently created a landfill site in an old strip mine, approximately 75 feet long and 50 feet deep. Plagued by people illegally dumping trash, the city created one official spot where the town's garbage would be disposed of. 
One theory claimed the fire started when hot ash from the coal burners was disposed in the landfill. Another theory was that the landfill fire was started by the Bast Coal Fire, an underground fire started by an explosion way back in 1932. The belief was that the fire was never fully put out and eventually made it to the strip mine holding the landfill, setting the garbage alight. Yet another theory was put forth by the city council when they wrote of, quote, a period of unusually hot weather. They hypothesized that the trash fire was started by spontaneous combustion. The belief was that they wanted to clean up the landfill in time for the city's Memorial Day events. Dump fires were illegal in Pennsylvania, but as a small town, Centralia figured they could sneak under the radar. So, on May 27, 1962, a fire was lit, with five volunteer firefighters putting out any visible flames. Whatever the cause of the burning garbage, the heat intensified deep beneath the layers of trash, and the fire smoldered while hidden away. Flames were seen two nights later, and extinguished. The city thought everything was taken care of, but people began to complain about a terrible smell coming from the landfill. The following week, more flames appeared. Again, they were put out. A bulldozer was brought in to move the trash around to make sure the fire was completely snuffed. But unbeknownst to authorities, a large hole in the floor of the landfill led through to a network of unused mine tunnels. The fire ignited the coal veins in the mines underneath the town. The problem was, the mine network stretched for 8 miles and went down as deep as 300 feet. What also made the coal fire of Centralia challenging was the type of coal being mined there, anthracite. Anthracite, or hard coal, is very difficult to ignite. This type of coal not only burns at searingly high temperatures, but is incredibly difficult to extinguish. Once an extremely large quantity of anthracite is lit, good luck putting it out. Shortly after the fire started, it became apparent that carbon monoxide gas, a lethal byproduct of the fire, was accumulating at life-threatening concentrations underground. All local mines were closed. Not good for a town based entirely on mining. The city needed to get the fire out, and they explored multiple options. It appeared the best way to deal with the fire was to dig it out. The challenge with this was the more the team dug, the more oxygen rushed in and fueled the fire. So they took a second approach. This one had the team filling the holes with a combination of crushed rock and water to minimize the flow of oxygen. But by now, it was winter, and Centralia was facing unseasonably low temperatures that froze the water lines. By March, ten months after the fire had started, the funding to put it out had run out. One month later, however, steam and other signs were seen 700 feet from where it had started. The extinguishing efforts had been unsuccessful, and in fact, it looked like the fire was stronger than before. Over the next decade, attempt after attempt was made to stop the fire, but all failed. It continued to move at a rate of about 500 feet a year. Trenches were dug, but did nothing. Tunnels and pits were filled with non-combustible materials, but there were miles of mining tunnels, and too many routes for them all to be filled. 
Over 20 years, $7 million was spent trying to extinguish the fire. The ground became dangerously hot, reaching temperatures of up to 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. In 1979, John Coddington, the mayor of Centralia and a gas station owner, was checking levels in his underground tanks. The dipstick felt hot, so he lowered a thermometer into the tank and discovered that the gasoline was 172 degrees Fahrenheit. An article in People magazine, written two years later, said the surface temperature in one resident's backyard had been measured at 626 degrees Fahrenheit. This extreme heat created severe structural damage and the risk of sinkholes throughout the town. A 12-year-old boy was almost swallowed alive by a 150-foot-deep sinkhole that appeared in his backyard and only managed to stay alive by holding onto tree roots until he was pulled to safety. As written in the same People magazine article, quote, In Centralia, even the dead cannot rest in peace. Graves in the town's two cemeteries are believed to have dropped into the abyss of fire that rages below them. But heat wasn't the only issue the residents of Centralia were facing. Poisonous carbon monoxide was being emitted into the air through cracks and fissures in the ground and roads. The risk to citizens was so severe that their houses were fitted with gas detectors. Later in the magazine article, they interviewed a resident about the machines in her house that monitored carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and oxygen. She said, quote, Suppose someone isn't protected from the gas and gets a headache. The natural thing for them to do is take a couple of aspirin and lie down to rest. It could be their last rest. The townspeople of Centralia reluctantly accepted that it wasn't possible to remain in their beloved town. In 1984, Congress approved $42 million to support relocation efforts for the community. Most people accepted the money and left, but some chose to stay. A few didn't want to leave the homes they grew up in. There were even rumors that the fire wasn't real and that it was all a ploy by the coal companies to drive people off their coal-rich land. The government decided to move things along. In 1992, the state government condemned all the buildings in Centralia and evoked eminent domain, which is the power of a government to take control of private land. In other words, they were forcing people to leave. Only seven residents were legally permitted to remain in a town that no longer had a zip code and where most of the buildings had been condemned and demolished. And what of the fire? Well, it's still burning today, as are about 30 or so other mining fires around the state of Pennsylvania. If you visit Centralia, the smoke continues to weave its way up from the depths of the mines, creating an otherworldly atmosphere straight out of a science fiction movie. And it's estimated to do so for at least another hundred years to come. Most people can still go back to their hometown and the buildings are still there and many of the people are still living there. When they say you can't go home again, it's really true in Centralia. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. As we look back at the world in which Henry Ford lived and worked, we can clearly see how much we owe to those remarkable men who, in every generation, contribute so greatly to human welfare. Our progress is given continuity by men like Henry Ford, men who see the shortcomings and needs of their time and venture forth with courage and enterprise to change their world and make it better for all men. The influence and legacy of famed American industrialist Henry Ford on the automotive industry has been huge. In order to maximize profits, the company had a monopoly on many of the raw materials that went into his cars. But in the 1920s, Ford found himself at the mercy of the British when it came to the cost of rubber. Ford had been sourcing the rubber for tires from Southeast Asia. But the market was controlled by the British, who governed the colonies responsible for most of the world's rubber production. After some brainstorming, he decided to think big and establish his own rubber-producing colony. But Ford didn't stop there. He had a reputation for not only being someone who cared about the bottom line, but recognized the importance of high morale and treating employees well. Ford wanted to establish company towns, where every resident would be motivated to perform their best at work thanks to good working conditions that were the envy of others. In fact, if it sounds like a brave new world, Henry Ford's vision supposedly inspired Aldous Huxley's 1932 book of the same name. In 1928, Ford put his utopian idea into action. His ideal township was not, as you might expect, in America's manufacturing heartland, or even in the United States at all. Ford's plan was to grow rubber in the northern Brazilian jungle of the Amazon basin. The name for his model factory village? Fortlandia, where he intended everyone to live by good old-fashioned Midwestern American values. Everyone would receive fair wages, put in an eight-hour workday, and receive free housing, education, and health care for their families. Large patches of jungle were cleared and construction commenced. The city was easily identified by the water tower bearing the distinctive Ford logo. A sawmill, rubber factories, schools, hospitals, a power plant, and library were constructed, along with a golf course, tennis courts, swimming pool, hotel, and a dance hall that doubled as the city's movie theater. But you could forget about unwinding with a well-earned beer at the end of a long day's work in the heat. Fordlandia was alcohol-free. It was also tobacco-free, women-free, and soccer-free. Ford even dictated the diet of his employees, demanding classic American eats like hamburgers and canned foods. For relaxation, residents were encouraged to focus on gardening, square dancing, and attending poetry readings. Inspectors went door-to-door -to, -door to ensure that people were adhering to the rules. As you can imagine, 
these strict lifestyle guidelines didn't go down so well with many of the new residents, especially indigenous Brazilian employees who were already feeling the culture clash. In 1930, riots and violence broke out in the cafeteria over the American food being served. Talk about a food fight. The Brazilian employees used their machetes to destroy buildings, while the American workers watched and waited for the violence to subside from boats in the river. A few days later, the Brazilian army arrived. Peace was reached when a new menu was created. There was another major problem. Ford had put his own factory engineers in charge of the plantation, instead of botanists. Despite their best efforts, their attempts at growing rubber trees were not taking root. Where they cleared the jungle, nutrient-rich soil washed away. The trees were plagued by pests and destructive fungi. The eight-hour workday didn't help either. Rubber trees are easier to tap during the cooler morning hours, so farmers tend to work from the crack of dawn to noon. But Ford's strict 9-to-5 routine required his tappers to work during the blazing hot midday sun when the trees were less efficient and the tappers were less happy. Ford still believed in his utopian dream, but at the urging of a scientist, in 1934 he moved his operation 80 miles downstream to an area with better conditions to grow rubber. He called his new community Belterra. Ford learned his lesson at Fordlandia and loosened his tight restrictions on the local workers. Belterra was praised as a model community, and in its first year, it produced 750 tons of latex. Too bad that Ford needed 38,000 tons to meet their annual needs. However, the effort was all in vain when synthetic rubber was developed nine years later in 1945. The cost to run the towns was now at an unsustainable level. Henry Ford II, Ford's grandson, sold both Fordlandia and Belterra back to the Brazilian government at a loss of $20 million, equivalent to almost $300 million today. The remaining American employees returned home and the buildings and manufacturing equipment fell into disrepair. Today, many of the buildings still stand but have been picked over for anything of value. There are vintage trucks left out to rust. The water tower with the Ford logo still stands. For decades, the population hovered just below 100 people. But Fordlandia didn't remain abandoned forever. While Ford's utopian vision is long gone, locals have begun to return to the town. It's now home to around 3,000 people, mostly farming families who have relocated to the area and repurposed the aging homes and fertile land. A person's home is their castle, or so we tell ourselves. For most of us, living in a castle is merely the stuff of fantasy. You might dream of a gothic and dark mansion, 
a medieval structure complete with moat and drawbridge to keep the peasants at bay, or a fantastical movie-themed palace with turrets and spires. But one developer in Turkey took that phrase to heart, although at a slightly smaller scale. Burj Al Babis is a development of 732 luxury villas, all designed to look like chateaux straight out of a fairy tale. The houses are all identical in appearance, with towers, balconies, and Baroque facades. Each chateau is on a relatively tiny 324 square meter plot, so the castles are close together, creating the appearance of an overly fancy subdivision. It's a touch of Disneyland in northwestern Turkey. Hundreds of little castles, in fact luxury houses with pointy towers and fairy tale charm. If it wasn't for the barbed wire and the fact that they're all empty and just aren't selling. They were designed to be vacation homes for wealthy tourists and were priced at $400,000 to $500,000 each. Residents would have access to Turkish baths, a water park, movie theaters, shopping, gourmet restaurants, and tennis courts. Burj Al Babis is in a picturesque valley on the northern banks of the Black Sea, with sweeping views of the surrounding mountains. It was a curated paradise, nestled halfway between Istanbul and Ankara. With plans signed off and investors on board, construction on the $200 million project began in 2014. But only four years later, with only 80% of the spectacular villas complete, the firm in charge of the project went bankrupt. The Turkish economy had stalled, and developers struggled to find buyers for the remaining villas. The buildings were abandoned mid-construction, almost as if the workers simply picked up and walked out, leaving behind an eerie ghost town of French castles in the middle of nowhere. Not exactly a happily ever after for this make-believe neighborhood. Some places are simply abandoned because they are so remote that in this modern age, it doesn't make sense to live so far away from civilization. The Outer Hebrides are a cluster of islands off the northwest coast of Scotland, on the eastern edge of the North Atlantic Ocean. The ancient isles are rich in Gaelic history and have been inhabited for 4,000 years by the Picts, the Vikings, the Scots, and most recently, the British. The islands are full of epic landscapes, with moors and mountains, sandy beaches, barren coastline and rocky outcrops that are home to all manner of wildlife. The most isolated section of the Outer Hebrides, and in fact the British Isles, is a group of four small islands known as St. Kilda, remotely located 40 miles west of its nearest neighbor. The largest of the four islands is Herta, which is less than two and a half square miles in size. A rugged and beautiful place, Herta has cliffs taller than the Empire State Building and is home to Northwest Europe's largest colony of puffins. The island has been occupied for around 2,000 years, but life there was difficult. The residents of the tiny island sustained their traditional way of life through sheep farming, weaving, and catching the plentiful seabirds. 
Despite there being more than one million birds living on the island, catching them was apparently quite difficult. It required you to hang over a cliff edge by a rope and reach out to grab the birds with a snare or by hand. Interestingly, even though they were surrounded by water, the residents rarely ate fish. In the 17th century, Herda was home to 180 people who had basically been living the same lifestyle as their ancestors. But by the turn of the 20th century, the population was less than half that. The numbers dwindled due to multiple events. During the Scottish potato famine of the mid-1800s, 42 islanders decided to move to Australia. Many, in fact, moved to Melbourne, where they named the suburb of St. Kilda in honor of their former home. By the end of the 19th century, a new revenue stream came to Herta when tourists began to visit, drawn by the island's rugged beauty. The new contact also brought disease, such as tetanus and phantom, that caused infant mortality rates up to 80%. And it was common after a boat arrived for residents to get what they called lowlanders cold. The tourists also brought an increased awareness of the outside world to the isolated islanders. During World War I, because of its prime location in the North Atlantic, a British naval base was established on Herta. Herta was actually one of only 15 attacks on British shores, when on May 15, 1918, a German U-boat surfaced in the harbor. The islanders ran to the hills as the Germans opened fire on the village. Well, some ran to the hills. Others apparently debated rowing out to the submarine and bartering for cigarettes. The village lost its church, storehouse, a few other buildings, and one lamb. The cows also ran to the far side of the island in fear. In the end, the frequent British military coming and goings gave the residents access to regular mail and supply deliveries. But this only continued to show the islanders how challenging their lives were compared to the outside world. After the war, many of the island's young men left. A few years later, influenza hit the island, and contaminated farmland led to crop failures. The population of Herda dropped from 73 in 1920 to 37 in 1928. In 1930, an otherwise healthy woman and her newborn died of pneumonia. This was a tipping point. Now aware of how the outside world lived, the islanders understood that their lives were full of hardship and that they had a choice. They realized that if they wanted access to the basic amenities such as better medical treatment, especially during the brutal winters when rough seas prevented boats from landing, they would need to leave. The residents petitioned the government, requesting to be permanently evacuated. On August 29, 1930, Herta's last remaining 23 adults and 13 children boarded the HMS Harebell to the mainland. Before they departed, each resident left an open Bible and a small pile of oats on the table in each of their houses, as was the tradition. In April 2016, Rachel Johnson, the last Herta native, died at the age of 93. She had been evacuated when she was just eight years old. The village on Herda remains uninhabited to this day, but the former homes of the families have been cared for over the years, 
and the archipelago is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Every abandoned town has a history. Some will never know, but the crumbling walls and decrepit floorboards reveal the stories of the past. As these lost towns fade into the landscape, so do the tales of the people who left them. True is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. A huge thanks for listening and for all your amazing reviews and ratings. I'll be back next week with another episode. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.